Hey guys, welcome to episode three of Dear Black Girl. And as you know, this show was actually inspired by three things. Um, one of them was this artist I saw on Instagram that's actually based out in Harlem. He has like this dope art series that's like letters to black boys and black girls and they're like encouraging letters. Um, also, it was inspired by Justin, the creator of Dear White People. And this anthology I wrote back in college for my African-American women's rhetoric class that I recently <laughs> came across that all just came into one. Um, but a little about the show. Well, first of all, I'm your host. My name is Unique. And the show is a guest-driven show that highlights the everyday black woman and my guests come on, they share their stories and personal experiences, all while curating the show's playlist. And each song holds like a special memory or lesson that our guests learned throughout their life. Um, the show's purpose is not only for women of color to come share their stories, but also to serve as a safe space and place for all of us. So without further ado, cool. dear black girl, meet Jazz. Hi. Um, for those who don't know, my name is Jazz. Um, that's on Twitter and Instagram at, at M-I-S-S-J-A-Z underscore. And I have to have emphasis on one Z a lot of times because a lot of people like to add like two Zs to my name. But um, All right, so Jazz is a graduate candidate, right? From yes. master's program at NYU. Yes. yes. And you're working on... A thesis about millennials and hip-hop, right? Yes. Right. So I um, go to the Gallatin School of Individualized Studies, and it's right next to Tisch. Essentially, both of those schools at NYU are the quote-unquote like artsy or arts um, schools. But in my particular school, you create your degree. So I wrote an essay when I was trying to figure out, you know, between finishing my bachelor's and coming between, living between Cleveland and New York, um, trying to figure out, okay, how could I make this, my love for, like, hip-hop and journalism bigger than, you know, like, my own imagination. So when I came across the individualized program where you could create it, I wrote the essay um, just saying, like, how hip-hop helped me comprehend my life. And, yeah, I put the program together. I even said when I was, because when you create the essay, you have to look through their course of study Mm -hmm. and pick classes and justify, yeah, justify, like, why all this works. And the beauty of it is that you get the chance to, like, intern, like, for credit. And I wrote on there, like, yeah, I'll intern at Rock Nation and then, like, High 97. You know, but the fact that, you know, here we are, like, two years later where I my graduate thesis, um, which is entitled Good Kids, Mad Cities, Hip-Hop and Black Millennials in the Age of Social Media, um, gets approved and they're just like you can do this as an artistic project i'm just like wow <laughs> i know it was a mouthful but no so tell us more about the project okay so essentially my project is it's an artistic so gallatin gives you the opportunity to do um to choose between three type of master's thesis in order to graduate you can either do a a uh, research essay, which is, you know... The boring one. Bunch of research, you know, just writing, yeah. you know. But I'm a creative anyway, and I feel like a lot of students between Gallatin and Tish are, like, creative. So I just told myself, um, out of the three, because the other one is a project thesis where you do, like, a... I don't know really... I can't really see the difference between a project and artistic one. I think with the artistic <laughs> one, you just have to write more because you have to write a goal and artistic aims. But I am essentially doing the artistic one. So the research essay basically studies black millennials as digital curators. Mm -hmm. And I am doing this because I am trying to articulate why in terms of the digital artifacts, the speed of Black Lives Matter, um, Black Girl Magic, how that relates to coding. I'm basically using that to say, why don't we use these particular labels or why don't we look at it this way instead of condemning these good kids from these mad cities as criminals, um, super predators, or what I see a lot of times now is entitled. And that's very problematic for me because I feel like the perception on what a millennial is sometimes is just, like sometimes people think millennial and they think like white suburban kid yeah. who eats avocado every day, you know? Yeah. And I feel like with black millennials, particularly us, that's not our reality. You know, we are that generation that lived through Barack Obama, we are that generation that lived through, you know, Ronald Reagan and had, you know, foster system, mass incarcerations, even from my own experience. 
kind of like alter our perspective or reality on, you know, like how we would perceive the world. But the beauty of that, I feel like what comes is this like digital literacy or digital landscape in 2007 when you see something like MySpace and you see kids and like potentially, I mean, particularly black kids creating like online culture but we didn't know we was doing at the time like i didn't know i was learning how to code when i was making yo my myspace page i go back to my black planet and myspace page i'd be like i can't do half that shit now but back in the day i'm sitting here like oh i want the stars so i gotta put this code in and then i have to change the color here right now it's like i don't know how to do that shit but i could do it at 13 yeah but what's so crazy is like in these what i feel like in a lot of these industry and digital spaces now and when you're building a website, or even when you're working for, you know, like a blog, all the backhand stuff of that is essentially the same processing skills from MySpace. And I just think that that's a moment in time, the culture, you know, even the young, you know, millennial hip-hop generation that we don't talk about a lot. But I feel like we do need to because you're seeing a lot of that, um, what was happening at that time in spaces, I feel like, in a, like a title a Spotify, a Apple Music, or, you know, um, how just some of these blogs or, like, artists magnify or became rock stars. You know, like, think about the time when MySpace was 2007 and then the Lil Wayne mixtapes were so heavy. And that's who we were cheering for and rooting for at the time. But then as MySpace, you know, like, fades away, and I write in my article, uh, I mean, my essay on um, how that happened a little bit, from 2008 to 2009, we're not on MySpace anymore, but Lil Wayne becomes the biggest rapper, you know, of that time, you know, between the Carter Three and between Barack Obama, you know, getting elected. So I just feel like it's it's a lot there. We just need to... <laughs> and that's what your essay is doing. Yeah. So speaking of hip-hop, we have... Uh... Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, you're good. I actually get you, your playlist, right? Yes. So I know this is like the hardest thing for a lot of people to do. So hard, especially being, um, like I said, quote unquote, black millennial who's grown up digitally because um, half of, like I said, half of the project is the essay. And mm-hmm. then the other half is a podcast. And that's that podcast is entitled Bridging the Gap because I'm essentially trying to bridge the gap between what I consider the children of hip hop and the adults of hip hop. And so metaphorically, I consider, you know, us, our generation, as the generation that came up with the digital, the Lil Wayne the J. Cole, the, um, who are the Wiz, the Dom Kennedys, the Kid Cuddies, you know, but is that to say we don't know a Rakim or Nas or a Jay-Z or a Slick Rick or, you know, a Grandmaster Flash? It's like, no, you know, it's just like hip-hop has grown so much. So how can we create a space where we can all, like, talk or just have this millennial perspective on a different and rare topics within, you know, hip-hop culture that doesn't make it so divisive? So even when I was creating my um playlist i was even trying to intertwine i was like <laughs> okay i gotta have like some ogs in here and like my millennial young ogs because i can't you know it's just <laughs> hip-hop is so and it's the is hip-hop is the most influential thing right now you know not even yeah. thing it's a it's a it's a like lifestyle for a lot of us you know so yeah this was hard <laughs> i'm ready so let's do this um if it's on your playlist let's do like the song that actually made you fall in love with hip-hop or music in general, if that's on your playlist. Yeah, I have that one on there. All right, let's start with um, that one. That would be number five. <laughs> okay, so I feel like Nas's Rewind okay. had a huge impact on when I started not only seeing myself as a lover of hip-hop, but I was just so intrigued i was like oh my god like this man just <laughs> rapped the song backwards he said screaming shoot don't please like what but at the time and it's a little backstory to that too like you know um and this would be my like first time saying it's like publicly like on record but like my stepfather raised me for um a very like long time in my life my mom too don't get me wrong but because i had a father figure in prison and not in prison and when you see, like, the prison system at, like, seven, eight years old, and for me, works. I feel like that instantly kind of altered how I saw the world or how I saw black bodies and black spaces. Um, so to have someone and people like Nas and J. 
Jay-Z at that time and um, both Thugs and Harmony because they was really big um, in our area in Cleveland. I was just like, yo, rap is just, that's the lifesaver. You know, that's what's going to help me get out of this. So when I heard like Nas, like rapid songs backwards and then me being a young kid, like I used to like say my alphabets backwards. I still do sometimes. <laughs> my mom, for real, my mom will call me up and say, can you do this for someone? I'm like, mom, I'm grown now. I'm not doing that. But for real, when I heard Nas doing it too, because when Still Matter came out, I was like, what? I'm born in 93. I was like young. You know, I wasn't able to buy my own hip hop records yet. My stepfather was playing it, you know, so. Okay, so let's go to the, what you said, black spaces, black people in black spaces or in certain I, spaces. I think I said black bodies. There we go, black, black bodies in certain space, something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to write it down. But um, uh, talk about more about that. Like, what do you mean by that? Um, So, like, between navig- growing up, how I picked up literacy, love for hip hop was between, like I said, two like spaces. And I considered them black spaces. My mom was a beautician. Like she went straight from high school to hair school. And I just feel like being a young girl in a salon, you're seeing everything. You and know what I'm saying? Everything. You're hearing everything. You're seeing the braids, the extensions, the perms, the naturals, the twists. Like I saw it all, you know, especially having a young mom who um, you know, we navigated through like two or three salons before she got, like, really settled. But it's just, I feel like the aspect of hair and black women anyway is such an identity factor. So that was, you know, seeing them, I was trying to, you know, see my own self through them. So that was a space for me. And then, you know, like I said, having my stepfather um, who was just, like, he's, we're all from Cleveland, but um, my stepfather um, was the biggest like hip and he still is hip hop junkie. <laughs> like I can call him and be like, yo, did you listen to that Kendrick? You know I dropped. But in his like, you know, world or whatever, his way of I feel like in my opinion, getting through things, whatever was happening at the time, was through playing like records. Like I remember when the moment Ether dropped, we were sitting in the car like, yo, like what? And never forget, you know, I can have those moments with my stepfathers because the other spaces um, where my father figures or dad were, were in, you know, prisons. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was just like seeing that at seven years old and then going to a prison facility again during my sophomore year of college and still seeing like it's black bodies though, you know, it felt like why is there so many black bodies in this black space? So for me, it just automatically... That's what it was, black bodies in the black space. Yeah, it okay. was just like, why is like... And it's not to generalize and say, like, the criminal justice system is, like, um, just the ultimate doom for, like, black people. But if that's where you guys are trying to leverage us through all these various, you know, um, prison reform. I mean, not prison reform, but all these, like, prison laws and just um, laws that were created between the 80s in the 90s, and they're kind of still happening now. They're, like, yeah. under the belly. They're trying to create... They just code it differently, you know? Going back to how I say things just look different. Um, but, yeah, it just kind of... Like I said, it gave me a different perception of just how this world was for Black people. Let's talk about... Um, because I experienced that when I was younger. Like, my... Well, my first stepfather, he was in and out of jail a lot, and a lot of the men in my family are in and out of jail. Mm. But, like, let's speak on, like, the effects that that has, like, on a female growing up. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, too, because um, I recently, um, last semester, I met Michelle Alexander. As we all know, she has the book, um, The New Jim Crow. But she moderated a panel um, through Columbia, and it was about um, I think it was a called Invisible Women, mad, how mass incarceration affects women and how we're not talking about the women that are impacted, the women that are being incarcerated, and the women who are affected when these black bodies go away and it's kind of um, restricted, you know, from passionate physicality or just... I just feel like the the prison system, it just alters so much, you know what I'm saying? Because you have a literally a bar between how you can communicate and how you can 
And it's frustrating because ultimately I feel like, um, especially for our, for young women is, you know, your father or your dad or not, or your brother, you know, that's who you ultimately want. I feel like in my opinion, your ideal mate, you know, if you are, you know, you know, strictly into, you know, men, um, but you want them to embody something of that nature. But if you never have that, you know, intimate experience, then I feel like it's it gets difficult as you get older um, a little bit. And I also feel like, too, especially with Black women, um, and because historically Black people have struggled for age, or people of color in general have struggled for agency um, in the United States and visibility, it's always difficult to either, you know... Um, express the effects of mass incarceration, especially when there's so many women in prison as well who don't even get the same amount of, like, visits I know. as, like, male-populated prisons. You know what I'm saying? That gives me another, like, perspective, too, because it's just like, damn, like, like I That's said, fine. but it's just like, <laughs> damn, you know, like, like, women really are, like, I say all the time, the backbone of protest, the backbone of this country since the beginning like, you know, like, we, like, teach, we raise kids, we, like, bathe kids, we teach kids. Those kids become adults, you know, those kids become, like, leaders of the world. It's black women who do that. Um, and to feel like when even when they're shackled, they don't get the love that they, you know, essentially that you would want, like, your mother or your nature to get. It gets frustrating, but it all goes back to just, you know, like, this institutionalized system that's making it work. You know, I call it a machine sometimes, like Megatron. I don't know, because I'll be like, yo, it's just like, it's crazy. It's really but crazy. at the same time, because my professors always tell me, you know, if you're going to talk about black um, trauma, you need to talk about black joy, because mm -hmm. there's so much black joy that is there. And it is. And I think our generation is that. And that's not to say no other generation has not, because I don't want this to be a divisive thing of like, oh, Generation X baby boomers versus millennials, but it's just like... It's more shown. I feel like our generation, and I'm, this is what I'm writing about, we have the artifacts and the access to the internet digitally to make this more visible, you know? And that's the difference. And, you know, if this was happening in the civil rights movement, they would do, like, strategic stuff, you know, what cameras and making sure. But I feel like the impact of us... Um, reaching higher education mixed with the digital literacy mixed with like hip hop being the most influential thing, it all kind of connects. And I just think that's where we come. That's where our responsibility is sometimes, because I feel like a lot of times um, it's hard for us to, us black millennials, it's hard for us to kind of articulate our struggle because our struggle looks different. It's, it doesn't mean it's not a struggle, you know, because I feel like sometimes that's why we get called, oh, y'all entitled or y'all this. And it's just like, who? Like, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to school. I'm paying, like, rent. I'm paying student debt. You know, my mom didn't go to college either. So, I mean, didn't go to college. So, and that's not to say, like, she's not educated or anything, but it's just, like, ultimately, being that first-generation college student, I feel like a lot of times, especially when you're a student of color, your family kind of looks at you as the one that's just like they have to make it. Like, they keep going, you know. It, you yeah. could because it's like we gotta get something. So it's just like I feel like for Black millennials, a lot of us we in school, we helping siblings, like we paying like parents' bills. We got like two jobs, and it's just like then we going through anxiety because of like the PTSD that's in a lot in our communities that we don't talk about either. So it's just. I just feel like the struggle is just different. That's not to say it's not a struggle. You may think I'm entitled because I'm ambitious or because, like I said, that impact of Michelle and Obama and just, you know, other figures like I feel like J&B and how we grew up seeing, you know, like... Something was attainable like if, that. It was, you know what I'm saying? In other generations, I feel like they didn't have people to tell them you could do that. Or anything. You, you know, like... And for us, it's just like, okay, y'all told us, so why are you <laughs> mad that I'm, like, like this, you know? Like, if anything, it's like you wanted me to have the, the big mansion 
and you wanted me to have all this, but you didn't really show me how to get it. You just threw it at me so you could cover up your own trauma. But I don't know. We just brought on a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go on to the next song. Uh, this will be the fourth song. Yeah. Um, I have J. Cole's Losing My Balance. Um, because between, like I said, having like how big hip hop has gone, how I feel about Nas is just how I feel about J. Cole in this new space. <laughs> like he is, I think he doesn't get the credit for being a great storyteller on top of the fact that he's making his own beats, you know, a lot of the times. And I remember when I first heard like losing my balance into, I always love to when like, MCs, and I feel like Nas is good at this, include the women perspective. I mean, perspective. Because like we said at the end of the day, like, women are the backbone of a lot of the shit. So when I see a lot of the people I look up to or in hip-hop or, you know, people that I deem as MCs or GOATs, it's like when they are talking about, um, you know, things from everyday life that women may experience or just talking about how he says and losing my balance, trying to figure out the balance. I feel like that's what happens in our generation a lot of times too because we have like social media where some people get to compare themselves or just they just try and that alters reality because at the end of the day, everyone isn't on the internet, you know? Everyone mm -hmm. isn't on like social media, you know? So I feel like um need a balance. So that's why I chose <laughs> Let's talk about, all right, let's talk about social media and... Just like millennials and millennial women, we, we I like to say social media is like the perception you want people to see of how your life is going without the other extra stuff, mm -hmm. the bad stuff. But I find that a lot of people, they compare themselves to their peers and how their peers are moving, not knowing the full story. Like, what's the toll that that takes, you think, on millennials? Um, I think, again, it goes back to more of a like mental Thing. I think it me I think it messes with your mind, and I think this is the one aspect that I do get a little afraid of sometimes when I see. Although I I love you know like Black Twitter, like I love it, you know, <laughs> and I love you know when we rally together. But my fear is this like comparison and this trying to because at the end of the day that that's a little bit of group think too, you know? Like, they talk about that. I think it's like psychology, sociology. Yeah, it's like a mom mentality. Yeah, I learned that in school. I learned that in Kent State somewhere <laughs> about group think, but it's just like, that can be problematic because when everyone's thinking the same, we're doing the same, no one's challenging each other. No one's thinking critically. No one's asking the questions that need to be asked. You're just kind of doing it for the moment. And that's not always good either because, you know, I feel like, you need timeless and classic artifacts and um, things to kind of make this culture, you know, continue. And, you know, yeah, I love, like, social media, but I definitely think the group think and the the access to information so fast sometimes and the access to BS so fast. Yeah. Because here's another thing I talk about, too, um, a little bit in my essay, and I want to touch on this. I think millennials, black millennials, all millennials too, but I think there's this perception that because we came up digitally or because we came up with this and the technology that our elders, our older generations be like, oh, you know, like get on that computer, figure this out. Or you got that social media, you know how to figure it out. And it's like, everyone isn't media literate. <laughs> like, that's a fact. You know, it, there are three basic skills to digital literacy and they one of them involves... Um, I got this from Kyra Gaunt, by the way. She um is a writer um in one of the books, um the hip hop Obama reader, and she also wrote the games Black girls play, um lessons from hip hop the double Dutch, and it's really good. But you know she talks about a lot of times how you know even with literacy it involves being able to code and decode messages, being able to code and decode. Um, what you're seeing. Everyone doesn't have the ability to do that. So to suggest that or to generalize everyone as if they can, I feel like that's doing more harm than good too because it's just like, wait a minute, kids pick up things differently. You know, I can even say through my experience working at PS54 for a year as a mentor tutor, a lot of my students, I would always say like, 
it's not that they couldn't read or comprehend reading or math. It's just that they are 21st century students in a traditional institutional it's not gonna learning work. space. That's not going to work. Don't tell me this girl can't read. But if I give her my cell phone number, she's texting me via iCloud that she's doing her work. Like, you know, for me, it's just like, no, that she can read. She's just whatever you're doing is not working with her. And at the end of the day, that's the child. You know, that's why the name of it is called Good Kids, Mad Cities, because it's like, it's, these are good kids. It's just like environments and digital environments, too, that are kind of like altering um, the reality a little bit. All right. So what do you think the effects of digital age are on young girls now? Because I remember like growing up, I can't remember the name of the video, but they like early 90s, maybe 2000s, they used to do the psychology test on like younger kids using the doll babies, the black doll yeah. babies, the white doll babies. And just the images you will always see in magazines. But, like, now we're in a digital space and you have, like, the Instagram models or, like, the un- unrealistic body goals. And these are, like, the new images. Like, yeah. And it's it's more of, like, body type, hair type, a little still kind of skin type. But it's, like, it's, it's, I feel like it's worse than it was back in the day. Like, what are your thoughts on the effects it has on girls? Um... Well, it's interesting you just said the term Instagram model because I va- I wrote a recently for class I attempted to write a chapter of my thesis, um, and it was entitled um, "Tech Queens, Black Girl Magic and Coding," where I basically took that book that I was talking about Kyra Gantz, um, the games Black girls play from Double Dutch to Hip Hop, because she basically says that there's this kinetic orality, um, which is basically the expressions and the linguistics and the chants that black girls inevitably pick up during their play when they are kids ultimately reflect and inspire black popular music. And one of the examples she uses is Nelly's Down Down Baby. Um, oh, I remember. Yeah, <laughs> Down she, Down Baby. Yeah, and you know, she the also... The old hand game. Right, you know what I'm saying? Like, but that's that's us, you know, like from even the girl or, you know, the girl. Like, you know, <laughs> that's, that's a black girl expression. But what she's saying is that that can point to a lot of uh, black culture aesthetics that, you know, we don't talk about. And she also talks about, like, identity and looking past beyond billboard scopes and I mean billboard charts that's what she's looking past like what does this like mean you know at the time where girls are you know on iPods and this book came out 2005 and so for me I'm looking at it from a lens of just like all right this is 10 years later now we have Instagram now we have um you know things um like stream all these streaming services like what does that mean for us and the way I framed the article started off from I mean the essay was The Fader recently did an article entitled The Black Barbie's Instagram. Mm-hmm. And the writer, I want to pronounce her name right, is Keelan Wright Jackson. She went to school with Lyra Galore. We know her at Lyra Galore, but I believe her real name is like Tyler Mercer. And one of the reasons why she interviewed her is because she's basically arguing that young women of color today who parade their beauty or, you know, as you say, post images... At the end of the day, they're restricted to like this um, bubble too of like respectability politics and internet trolls because, you know, and I go back to my space, like I feel like that gave us the agency to be free. You know, we were the girls that saw the Spice Girls. We saw Beyonce screaming, all my women independent. Like, so for me, it kind of gave me a different, you know, ultimate of what a black girl could do. You know, I was like, okay, if I can, you know, wear a tank shirt. You know, I don't have to wear a long sleeve shirt. I can wear some <laughs> jeans and a tank top shirt because Beyonce said I can, you know. But, you know, that's not to, you know, say that. You know, I'm just speaking that, for example. But she basically argues, you know, like, there are white models on Instagram who are doing this but get IMG deals. They get Wilhelmina deals. And black models or and I you know I have friends that are models too and to hear their stories is just it's inspired me and changed my whole perspective on like the like these beauty industries um because it's, it's crazy a lot of times that happens to models of color but she basically argues you know like yo like these women are enhancing their bodies and black women going back to you know New Orleans in the 70s our beauty I mean 19 
um, she goes into like the 1800s, like our beauty has always been restricted. You know, black beauty was from black women was a threat, you know, to society. And she basically, you know, tells the story in a way at the end where it's just like, we're creating these content, these spaces, the, the beauty trends and all of this. We're not making the money from it, you know? And that's, that's what sucks. So what I basically did was talked about how, you know, between these artifacts that are now Black Girl Magic, post the Black is Beautiful um, movement, is still Black girls at play and relating to one another. I oftentimes don't feel like we don't get the credit for uplifting each other online because I feel like what social media has done has given us the visibility to support one another. When I'm on my Instagram, I be seeing other black women post other black girls or other women of color post other women of color. And I don't think I've like really seen that at different, as as high as of rates today as I've ever seen it in the past. Um, so I don't know. I think it... It's, it's good and bad, because on the bad side, I also feel like you do have those girls who don't, who can't decode literacy and what they can do and what they can't do. So when I see, you know, like young girls, um, you know, like that's between 11, because like I said, I worked in the school system between 11, 12, coming in with like extensions to like your ass, they back nails acrylics like I didn't have a I didn't get my first set of acrylics till I was like 18 like I waited a minute and it that process frightens me I think the only thing again I think this goes back to the access of this information so fast and what it's doing that's the I guess the part where the effects on our women of color where I just get a little weary if that's why I'm so interested in having programs where we can teach, you know, girls how to code. And there, there's a um, Black Girls Code Foundation in um, San Francisco right now where their goal is to train, um, I think it's 11 point, or they want to train at least 1.4 million girls of color um, how to code by 2040 so they can be in these computer engineering tech spaces. And because, like I said, it's ultimately, at the end of the day, social media is just decoding. You know, that's really what it is, essentially. So I just feel like, yeah, I hope that answered the question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're on song number three, right? Um, Yes, we're on song number three. So song number three is um, Biggie Smalls, Sky's the Limit. And I think ultimately the video has a huge impact on why I chose that song. Um, Because I remember that was one of the first music videos I saw and picked up visually and remembered from being like a kid. I was like, yo, he has kids talking about aspiring to just live their dreams and be what they want. And he didn't tell that story. You know, when you seen the video, he didn't tell it through. You don't really see, um, you don't see them. You see kids and they looked like my age at the time. So I was just like, oh, this is dope. Um, so yeah, Biggie Sky's the Limit is definitely always going to be on my list for top five anything <laughs> yeah that song is and i don't it's so crazy because i don't even like to include when we're talking about like top oh top five rappers period i don't put tupac or biggie in them because i just feel like you can't like don't touch them it's they too like, easy it's too it's like they the mj of the game like why do you want to even include them in like <laughs> the conversation like, the conversation like nope let's just let them live on like hip-hop mount rushmore like so yeah so what's some of the um challenges you feel uh, young, maybe young girls, just like women of color face, like trying to achieve their goal. I feel like sometimes, and this is because of the, you know, um, like sexism and just a, a male dominated world and space um, that has so much power. I feel like sometimes that ultimately trickles down to our self esteem. And sometimes we don't even recognize the magic in us. You know, everything right now is black girl magic, black girl magic. But I think having other black girls or other, you know, women of color kind of saying that to one another kind of boosts it. Um, you know, it can, um, you know, boost your self-esteem, your confidence. And um, I sometimes feel like we don't, 
see the confidence in ourselves. Because they do. Like, they know we the ish. They just don't want to <laughs> say it. Like, I'm just keeping it real. Like, you know, I can even say if someone, give an example of someone like the beautiful Michelle Obama. Like, I, I'm obsessed with her, so I'm going to be a little biased anyway. <laughs> but, no, but for, on some real stuff, like, if you even think about, like, the last campaign, like, what just happened, their president, I, I can't recall him saying one negative thing about her. At all. At all. And it's like, you know, he came for her husband, blah, blah, blah. But even when I think about all of them, none of them directly came out and said anything about First Lady Michelle Obama because at the end of the day, you can't. That is a woman of... And the, that did what she did, who made that role her own. Two Ivy League degrees that a lot of these first ladies have never had. You know, she's like top three in the game. And it's just like, I think that goes back to just like black women in this, or a woman of color in this country, period, being the backbones, the mothers, the take care, the caretakers, the educators, the everything. And I just feel like, Again, they know that, but when you're living through a space where everyone's, you know, at the end of the day, it's because of power and people, you know, don't want to really give the power to who they know um, ultimately can make things right. 94% of us, you know, that tried to tell y'all, <laughs> but I think, um, but I say all that to say, I just think it's self, our self-esteem and confidence um, sometimes kind of keeps us from because I feel like if we really not all but if everyone had the um no yes all but if everyone had the resources and the emotional resources to really like foster you know like these like billion dollar like black babies like everything but <laughs> already black girls you know like what are some ways you think that uh women who don't have like that emotional self-support can develop that um, so one of the things I'm really big on is, um, like mentoring. So, and I think that's because I've had like mentors, you know, like throughout my life, like even my professors, the professors that I feel like that are genuine and that really care. I like try my best to keep building a relationship with them because ultimately I feel like programs, and this is another thing too, growing up. I can even say in Cleveland, we used to have like little cheerleading programs like the Bulldogs or little, it was, um, it was like city programs. They weren't necessarily with the school, but you could do like stuff in the city. And it's like, I don't see a lot of that no more. Like, I don't see a lot of the like after school art programs I used to see. They take mu music is not even in schools a lot of times anyway. And I feel like for the kids that didn't have the emotional support, the arts is what kind of helps, like, foster that, you know? So, like, even someone like me, when I felt like my self-esteem was low, cheerleading and dancing when I was a kid ultimately made me feel like, no, I can't do something, you know? Like, because <laughs> she can't split like that, but I can't, or not, you know, like, he can't do that, but I can, you know? So, but little things like that, you know, ultimately help build your, like, I think it's what they call it, like, sportsmanship or... I don't know what I they call it in sports, it. like, but like teamwork or something. But I just feel like outlets like art, the arts, and um, just being able to express yourself, rather if it's through, you know, like writing or, um, like I said, um, visual, like visual arts or just, I don't know, being able the body and movement. I feel like that helps um, for anyone that doesn't have emotional support. And that was frustrating too, working in the school system here a little bit because... Oh, it's so frustrating I here. feel like... And I, I don't want to generalize, um, too, because it's stuff that's messed up in the Midwest, but I felt like out here, like, again, we talk about being it's, able to move and being different. able to fly. fly and spread your wings, but it's hard to do that if my school is right here and then I have my precinct right here i have police cars right here then where i live right behind it that's not no freedom to really it's like a it's like a self of failure because like you have it's a trap 
And then, like, when you look at the schools here, because I remember in college working after school, I did two after school programs, like, but the very first one I did was in Hollis, Queens. And, like, for one, the schools, like, you have these middle school kids in the same school as these high school kids because you're trying to downsize populations. And, yep. like, then there's bar, like, there's, like, prison bars on the walls. And there's, like, a lot of these kids are growing up so fast because the yeah. environment they're in. Like, they're not really in a safe environment because, like, they're around just grown-up stuff all the time. Yep, and it's, tra- and, that, and it's traumatizing, too. That's what a lot of people don't pick up. That is traumatizing. Like, a lot of people don't even discuss that right now the suicide rate amongst black children is going up. Yeah, like, And it's going a- higher, you know? Like, I was working with, you know, educators in my, you know, school district who mentioned, you know, like, that they had to stop students from committing suicide, walked in on them, and I'm just like... This is crazy. And, you know, that's why I say going back to, like, the PTSD and all of that, that doesn't get talked about amongst with, like, black youth. It's, that's ridiculous. It's problematic to not talk about it because it keeps fostering this problem. Because even what you just said, it's interesting having all these kids in one space. I went to one of those schools when I was in, I'm going to say, second, third grade. I went there for, like, a year or two. Me and my sisters did. But it was literally K through 12th. Like, you can't have like those different levels. We didn't even have classrooms. We had like, what's those things they use to like block off? Um, it's not, it's not cardboard. Like I don't know what to call it. It's like it. that weird wall that retracts and opens. Yeah, it retracts and opens. It's just like walls that they use to create other like spaces. Like yeah. our lockers wasn't even really like. It was terrible when I think back on it. Like, God, how could you incubate a child in a space like that? Like, it's no, you know. (laughs) (laughs) We are at song number, what, two? Um, So song number two is going to be um, Tedra Moses for a lifetime. Um, So when I was, because there's still this part of me that's very neo-soul, very... (laughs) R&B, and I think that goes back to the fact of me being, you know, ultimately a woman. Because I sometimes, even in academia, you know, I was asked a question recently, um, like, do you identify as black first or as a woman first? And I said black. And I was like, the reason why I say black is because I feel like at the end of the day, my parents, they knew I was, they had to prepare for a black child before they had to decide if they was going to be a boy or a girl, you know? So... But at the same time, you know, I'm learning through, like, Joan Morgan, um, who wrote When Chicken Heads Come to Roots, a hip-hop feminist break it down. There is a space where, you know, you can still be like, no, I'm a woman, you know, even though my views on, like, feminism and I may be, like, a little, I don't know, more liberal than some feminists, that doesn't mean I'm not, you know... Feminist hip hop just has influenced it so heavy. So it's just like I see stuff differently. Um, but I say all that to say someone like Tedra Moses, when my stepfather wasn't playing Nas or Jay Z, he played Tedra Moses Complex Simplicity. And he would play A Marie a lot too. But Tedra Moses just has a song called For a Lifetime where she's just talking about like the kind of love that'll just like rock your heart or whatever. And that that album in general is just so dope, it's so slept on. Um but I really, really liked Tedra Moses at the time. She reminded me of a moment that I had when I used to listen to, like, Brandy. Or, like, like I said, I loved A. Marie. I love Faith Evans, too, um, and Erica Badu. But Tedra was just, like, she was just a splash of something different. Did you grow up loving hip-hop more or R&B more? It's crazy because I, I feel like I definitely loved hip-hop more, but I felt that... I got my, like, love for the culture from, I don't know, from R&B. It's hard to explain because I feel like R&B and neo-soul at the end of the day, it's a it's a, it's a a nice moment. You know, it's love, it's tenderness, it's sweet, the production. And I feel like when I started hearing things like, and I wanted to put this song on my list, but I couldn't. But Mary J. Blige and Method Man, like, you're all I need, like, that song, that's the song that really made me love and fall in love with hip hop. It was just the fact that Nas's rewind was when I, it was the wittiness of that one, but it was just like, 
oh, it was like, oh, I love hip hop. No more, no, like, like, for <laughs> real. I was like, this is it. Like, this is a fact. Like, Mary J. Blige and Method Mad, that song, You're All I Need, um, what's that name? You're All I Need to Get By. Uh, Honestly, then, I'm not gonna lie, like, back in the day, I could not tell you the names of songs. I could just tell you the hooks. That's yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> and it's just like, you're all I need to get. But, but it's just like, to see that combination. combination. And then I felt like, too, Mary J. Blige was, at the time, the queen of, like, hip-hop and R.B. Like, she created that lane for, between what we were seeing with, like, Jodeci and seeing the, um, um, like, Poison. Seeing stuff like that where you literally saw, like, it was hip-hop, but it was R&B. It ultimately, I don't know, I guess it magnified hip-hop culture for me. So I even though I love, you know, like, hip-hop and it's so influenced and it's so witty and it's so, you know, it's gritty. And even going back to my women in hip-hop people like Sister Soldier and, like, Lil' Kim, Foxy Brown... Trina, I used to love Trina. Like, for real. I thought Trina, I was like, Everybody boy, you can Trina. be wild like that and just say it, girl. I was like, yes. <laughs> yes. But that doesn't mean that, you know, like, I still wasn't someone who was, like, taking in what Sister Soldier was saying or someone like Queen Latifah. But, yeah, I just felt like, going back to what you were saying, that blend of, like, 90s R&B with, like, hip-hop still merging and people not thinking it'll be big, it kind of helped, like I said, hip-hop be what it is today. And you and this is so crazy, but you see that today, though. Like, you see, like, hip-hop being more melodic now. Yeah. And I think that really goes back to the whole, what happens when our singing and R&B and, like, hip-hop come together. So, yeah. Oh, going back to Trina, uh, that reminded me of... All right, so Lil' Kim, so... Yes. In my, um... I took this class in college called African-American Women's Rhetoric Class. It was basically like... That's not interesting. It was it was, it was was so different. It's uh, like one of the best classes I've ever took in my entire life. What's cool? This is at St. John's. Oh. I don't even know if they even have this class anymore. Oh, nice. So basically what happened was it was like an open... Like we had our professor, but like she didn't really teach us. Like she allowed us to teach ourselves. And it it's it sounds confusing, but it's really good. So basically what happens is like she she'll give us material and like we will have to like break it down, discuss it anyway. So one thing she gave us was this professor, I think at Syracuse, he had this course called Queen Bitch 101. <laughs> and the course is a feminist course that is taught around Little Kim and how Little Kim's a feminist. And oh, I should have been in that. That's not like something I'm interested in. That's 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 intriguing. And like, and the crazy part was like, I remember everybody in class being like, "What the fuck?" Like just thinking about it. So like, when she gave us the material to read, and basically it broke down like how, like how you said with Trina, like whoa, a girl saying all that. So it's like one of those like how Trina, like not Trina. Kim was a feminist because she owned her own sexuality yeah. and she showed that. So. Let's talk about, like, how black, like, as you know, black women are over-sexualized, but, like, the power of, like, owning that, because you do see, like, people like Trina own it, yeah. Nicki Minaj owns it. Yeah. Um, Kim created it. <laughs> right. No, you definitely. I'll definitely say she did, and this and this is why going back to, like, this whole thing of what it, of this idea of, like, of being a hip-hop feminist or... A, because I'm still working on it too. Because hip, because Joan Morgan coined the term hip hop feminism in like 1999, 2000ish, and like again, it's 2017, and there's so much digital stuff. So I don't know if I'd be wanting to say, is it a black millennial feminist? Like, is it a digital feminist? Like, what is it? Like, you know, people like David Kirkland at NYU have used the term organic feminism, spelled the P H E N I. S-M. <laughs> Don't kill me y'all, but... Um, but he basically wanted to play on the words of hip-hop to say, like, you know, what is happening? Because it's, it is different, you know? And don't get me wrong, there are a lot of, you know... Um, and there's no shade, because I definitely respect and love her. And But when I'm in academia, you know, I say a lot of times, like, I respect and love bell hooks, but I'm not bell hooks, like... I, you know, I I don't agree that a woman can't be, you know, just as educated or have a Michelle Obama-esque and still not display an inner Beyonce. So 
people like Brittany Cooper, who are featured in um, The Making of Michelle Obama, she wrote an essay on how you basically shouldn't be surprised that someone like Michelle Obama and Beyonce have a relationship because essentially they kind of have the same upbringing. Like, here's a, you know, young black girl that was, you know, middle class, family, father working, mom's working. She ultimately becomes the biggest pop R&B, you know, star right now, you know. Um, But at the core of that story is she, a lot of people say, you know, She's married to this drug dealer. You know, that's the metaphor for, you know, even though we love Jay-Z, but, you know. But even when you look at Michelle Obama's story, it's like, okay, here's someone, South Side Chicago, who has to work, do everything. She's working twice as hard, got all these political affiliates, all these degrees, meets someone who doesn't even have the same political affiliation as her. Like, he basically has to meet, mesh with her in order to amplify his political campaign and what he's doing. But she says all that to say, like, the container for Black Girl Magic is so big that it spills out, you know what I'm saying? So to kind of keep women restricted into these bubbles of who they should be through their identity is um, a little problematic. And I agree with that. That's why I feel like for me, seeing the Spice Girls and seeing, you know, like Destiny's Child, seeing the Trina, seeing even someone like Erica Badu, because a lot of people like to argue that Erica Badu is just all conscious and for, you know, like covering the body. And I like to argue like, no, Miss Badu <laughs> be strutting it. And I love it, you know, like she shows me I can be free as well. Like we don't have to have all these labels or conservative, you know, class-based restrictions on who we should be. And I think a lot of that, like I said, goes back to like Lil' Kim, Foxy. Um, I'm trying to think of someone else who really I feel like paved the way. Salt and pepper. I'll say salt and pepper too, you know, like the whole like push it and just Oh yeah, like the subjects they talked about. Yeah, like it's just like, you know, like TLC, like all of that. Like, and it's just like, how can you fought me? For that being my experience, you know, like I didn't grow up through, you know, respectability politics. Quite frankly, I don't think I would have. No, I mean, I don't know, but I'm just saying, like, of course, times is different. And we have the agency to be a bit more free in our ancestors and, you know, people that came before us. They didn't. But ultimately, I feel like um, I hope this is answering the question. Like, yeah, there is a space, you know, I feel like where we can, like, women can be these, you know, feminists. And that doesn't have to mean that we don't necessarily um, identify with some of the liberal aspects of hip-hop, but that also doesn't mean that we don't critique the misogyny of hip-hop either. You know, that also doesn't mean that we not go call out a future or a Nelly for some effed up shit they might say. You know, it just means that we are fluid in our minds to understand like what could be problematic and what could be like, hey, you know, you said this, but let me tell you why that kind of affected me and why you should, you know? So that the funny part about that, that reminds me of a <laughs> so the dream had a song, I think it's called Michael, I think it's called Michael Jackson. It's on foreplay. I'm going to say it's It might Michael. be. And it's so crazy. The, I just saw him yesterday. At <laughs> oh, the genius yes, thing? <laughs> yes, yes. That's crazy. I should know this. But basically, but basically, it's like a song about, he's singing about like not being faithful, this, that, and the other. And, but he's singing it from a guy's perspective. So like, it was like, but for some, that was like with me and one of my homegirl's favorite songs. So one of my homeboys was in the car with us and he's like, how are you singing this? Like, why do you like the song? Like, it's the great. And I was like, no, like he's girls think the same way. Like, yeah. he's just singing it from a guy's perspective. Mm-hmm. But when we're singing it, like we're thinking as a female, because we do this, we think the same way, we react the same yeah. way. Like, not everything is degrading. Like, right? There's levels to it. There's levels. No, you're you're no. That's the perfect word. There's levels to it. Everything isn't so I don't know divisive or so just contained to one idea you know i feel like that's that's lazy like that's not really like helping things you know get a bit more like creative and you know innovative now let's get to the last song song number one yes yeah, so song number one um is k cuddy um cleveland is the reason 
Because you're from Cleveland? (laughs) And because, ironically, me and Kid Cudi went to the same school district. Okay. Um, And so I feel like I just have a very real perspective on what it's like to come from that area and kind of know Kid Cudi's, like, mindset. Because I'm going to be honest, I am... There are a few artists like now who I can't stand for everyone. You know what I'm saying? You especially the how like the changing of the times has now, but it's like I'll stand for Jake Cole and I will stand for Kid Cudi. Like it's just like you can't because I feel like Kid Cudi literally was the catalyst for the shift and when hip hop really went to a new place where you see it kind of is today. Um, a lot of people, you know, they give Ye his credit for it. And don't get me wrong, Ye definitely did, you know, play a role in that too. But I feel like before the 808s, there was Kid Cudi who was doing it. And I feel like... And that was like the pursuit of having that. Yeah, and it was even... But even before that, like going back to... Um, I'm about to pull up his big states now because <laughs> I have them all on my phone. No, seriously. Um... You know, even when you think about Kid Cudi's that kid from Cleveland or, uh, you know, songs like with him and um, Chip the Ripper, he's another person from Cleveland, too, were doing, sonically, too. I feel like no one was really sonically doing that, the whole, like, the, the various 808s he was taken from. But all of that ultimately, in my opinion, goes back to growing up when you're in a city like Cleveland, where it's, there's so many, like, creative kids. So many just, like, especially if they're, like, student of color coming from, like, no low low social economic backgrounds. The problem is, is that we don't have the resources to really make our stuff pop. You know what I'm saying? Because it's so scarce and we're in the Midwest and it's rural. But... That doesn't say we're just we're not just as talented or you know even talented. Um, so for someone like Kid Cudi to go to a space like Shaker, and I'll be honest, for those who, like Shaker Heights, Ohio, Shaker Heights is literally like I'll say for those who don't know, it kind of feels. You remember the show Baldwin Hills? Mm-hmm. Like it was kind of like a black suburb, but it's still a Jewish suburb too. Um, but it's also very close to Cleveland, where so you can have people take their Section 8 vouchers and live across, you know, in the district so their kid can go to school because Shaker Heights is one of the number one school districts um, in the world. And it's because it's for, a lot of the times it's because of their programs. Like they have a program like SCORE, where um, basically when you enter their uh, school system, they try their best to dismantle anything you know about race, anything you know about class. So it's interesting because you have these like, Oh, some of my friends at Cleveland call them like emo black kids. Like <laughs> you have these like like just kids that um are just incubated and they just come out like hybrids, like of just everything that they around. You know, like I can say it even for myself, like, you know, to be someone who ultimately can identify with a sister soldier, but that doesn't mean I can't identify with like a Nikki or a Beyonce or Rihanna or a Angela Davis either. It just means my mind is so everywhere fluid, and because of my access to the information, that doesn't mean I know everything. You know what I'm saying? Because I think the perception is that oh, y'all think y'all know everything. It's like no, I just have the access to it, and I feel like that can be a mental overload uh, for us sometimes too. But I say all that to say, going back to like um, Cleveland, you know. One of the things I noticed, and it made me even more appreciative of Cleveland, um, living in New York. And I don't know if it's because New York is so, like, there's so many different, like, boroughs and so many things. But our loyalty to our, like, hometown and sports and the culture of the sports um, life there, I think ultimately it's because we don't have those resources to do everything else. So it's like, if all I got... Is this <laughs> ticket to, you know, like, Jacobs Field. Now it's called Progressive Field. But it's like, all if I got is this ticket to this Indians game. If all I got is this ticket to this Browns game or this Cavs game, then that's what I'm going to hold on to. That's going to be our time when we can, like, celebrate, blah, blah, blah. 
But I feel like there's still like this loyalty and this sense of just um, Southern hospitality because of the Underground Railroad and people coming in from Alabama to settle in places like Detroit, Cleveland, Chicago. That ultimately reflects a lot of our, um, I don't know, how we kind of interact with others. Like, you know, I'm very, hey, how are you, smile? And then New York is just like, uh. <laughs> you know, and I'm not trying to generalize people. I'm really not. Like, I. so if you're a New Yorker and you hear this, you'd be like, well, I don't think like that. It's like, look, I'm sorry. It's like, it's like that. Out- this is just what I... Outside looking in, like, from not being from New York and coming to New York, that's... That's how it is when you first get here until you actually, oh, okay, I get it. You're not. Yeah. And, and then you start to pick up those traits. But, like, when you're fresh here, it's just like, oh, my God. Right. And the thing is, it's like, at this point, it's like, I get it. Like, I didn't mean it for a I, minute I, now. I get why y'all like Yeah, and it's I like, get it. I get it. But it's just, I also still, too, going back to Cleveland is the reason. It's like, I don't want it to, like, change me either. Like, I don't want it to, like, because I find myself sometimes just getting so, like, just, poker face and just, you know, like, <laughs> I ain't holding the door for you. Like, you ain't do it for me. Like, that's what we do. But it's just like, no, that's not me. Like, I'm very caring. Like, you know, <laughs> um, like, let me hold the door open for you. That's just who I am. So, um, ultimately, yeah, you know, I say, like, going back to that song, yeah, Kid Cuddy's A Kid Named Cuddy mixtape, like, that was, and again, this is around the time where I'm able to make mixtapes I'm uploading MP3s because MySpace gave me the agency to do that. I'm uploading MP3s. I'm, like, on LimeWire taking stuff. You know, I didn't know that was bootlegging at the time. I had no idea, but it was just, like, it was so hot, and it was a moment for us. We was just like, no, we got to get this. Like, I I probably made, like, five different copies of that. (laughs) Made, like, little 10 little dollars, but it's just, like... It was was just so dope. And like I said, I think Kid Cudi is literally... um, even when you think about how mental health is being picked up as on a as a big conversation um, starter now in like hip hop spaces, I feel like people like Kid Cudi um, really gave a lot of agency for that to kind of happen now because he was that kid that was talking about you know it's a lot of kids that I talk well we grown now well young adults but it's a lot of young adults I talk to whether they're my peers or, you know, we're talking about hip-hop, and they'll say, you know, Kid Cudi saved my life. Or they'll say, like, I was about to, like, kill myself, and I, like, heard Kid Cudi, and I just feel like that's... That's powerful. It's so it's so powerful. And like I said, to, like, literally, when he's on tracks talking about, like, back and shaker, bitches got that baby to the left, now I picked it. It's just, like, I know what he's talking about, you know, because it's, 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 like, be from there and kind of... You know, kind of like I said, be trying to follow his way too, because I get it. He's someone else that left Cleveland, moved to New York, was living in Brooklyn, started working with Bashi Cola and was doing stuff. And it's just like, okay, you know, that was kind of something I saw too. And that just, you know, gave me the agency to be here. So, so what's one of the legacies you want to like leave behind? Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> that is wow. Okay. So I think a lot of people know. I mean, maybe they they do know, but the other aspect of my degree is social change. So it's hip-hop, it's mass media, social change. It was activism, but I felt like the term act... Not to say I don't identify with being an activist, but I feel like... I don't I don't like labels anyway like that, you know what I'm saying? That's why it's hard for me to um, try to figure out how I want to articulate stuff. But um, the idea of social change and being able to do something socially or change something that you really don't feel like um, is being, like, talked about or discussed or helping shape different perspectives or get people to see something from another angle that can help the world better, I feel like you can do that through something like hip-hop. And you can do that through still being not only, like, yourself, but being able to use, you know, mass media. So one of the things that I really want to do, and I say this, by the year 20... 25 um, or 2030, I want to have what I call hip-hop recreational. And I want to have one in Cleveland, one in New York, one in Los Angeles, too, and I got to get one in the South, so maybe four of them. But I want to have what I call hip-hop safe havens in our communities because I feel like hip-hop is like the last great saver we, as a culture, kind of have left to kind of 
Because, you know, like, people like Brittany Cooper, Aisha Durham believe, like, hip-hop feminism is a political intervention where you can use culture as a means to shape and shift things, you know? And we see now our culture is the number one most influential, you know, like, thing right now. That's, like, that's not an opinion. That's an empirical fact. There are people in academia who are seeing this, that, you know, hip-hop is outpacing the British invasion, you know, going back to old Beatles and all that. So I feel like if I could do what I'm doing now through my love of like hip hop journalism and like um mentoring cause and A and R and cause I like to do so much. It's hard to contain it sometimes. But I think having a space or hip hop YMCAs, whatever I'ma call it, where there's mental health clinics, recording studios, in house MCs where I could potentially have, you know, hey, call J. Kobe like, yo, I need you to come in for a day. I got like ten students coming in. I know you're busy, even if you could just Skype, like, help them for, like, five minutes, that's enough, you know, or, and they can have food pantries, you know, like, we have food services, because I just feel like, and it's so simple, but the only thing that you kind of need to make this stuff work is, like, caring, and, like, a lot of people, and I'm seeing it, you know, through my navigating spaces, that's the one thing where it's black, and people don't care, like, like, we're living through a world now where people just trying to get the like profit but the problem is that our wage gap is literally getting wider and wider and wider. and people because we're living so like modern and digitally and through these spaces where it doesn't look like that like you said because we can make things look differently people aren't picking up on that but this is something you know like that's really heavily talked about and not even in just academia period if you you know you i don't know if you're economic i don't know but um but I say all that to say, ultimately, I just want to, I don't know, leave a legacy of social change. And if it's through, you know, the facilities I want to build um, and have, you know, not only just because even if I can't be at them all the time, I want to have it. So it's jobs, you know, like hiring people, people in the community have jobs, you know, people in the community have somewhere to go if they want food. My young MCs in the community have somewhere to go if they want to foster their talent. You know, people like Ron Fest are doing this now in Chicago. He has a, um, I forgot the name of it, but Ron Fest has a really dope hip hop culture activism after school center program that he does in Chicago, where he basically, you know, fosters the talent out of these students who are, they have these stories, you know. Um, and it sucks sometimes because I oftentimes feel like, damn, like, why does black pain or black suffering or whatever, or, you know, black joy too, but why does black pain make the money and the profit? And that's what, you know, people want to see. Or why does that always, why is that always a thing that gets us out of, you know, are these marginalized areas? So if I could just leave a legacy of change. All right. So before we go, you have to drop your uh, Dear Black Girl open letter. So you'll start off as Dear Black Girl your letter, and then sign jazz. This is, I want to say, this is beautiful, by the way. Like, this, <laughs> aside from this whole experience being here, but the whole aspect of, like, writing a letter to a black girl is so dope. Oh, my God. So, dear black girl, um, you is kind, you is smart, you is beautiful, and you inspire me every single day. When I see you, I see myself. Sign Jack.